0: I'm Denisha Simpson,
1: and I'm Joy McGowan, and And we we are are
0: the the co-hosts to the the Resilient Black Women Women podcast. Podcast. Our podcast is all about demystifying mental health for black women, women of color, and women everywhere.
1: You can learn more about our work with our nonprofit and our podcast by visiting resilientblackwomen.org.
0: You can also listen to our podcast at KUAF.com or subscribe to our podcast on any streaming platform.
1: Hey, everybody, I'm Jerry McGowan, and I'm here to introduce to you Dr. Candace. She is this month's Black woman professional that Denisha and I interviewed. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She is an award winning associate professor of counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky. This is where she studied sexual wellness and liberation. She is the host to the podcast Fuck the System, a sexual liberation podcast as well as the host to How to Love a Human, a liberation podcast that asks people with multiple marginalized identities what the world would be like if it loved them. She has published over 50 research articles, been featured in HuffPost, Women's Health, Cosmopolitan, The New York Times, and among many others. She has been featured on podcasts like The Homecoming Podcast with Dr. Thema and Sex with Dr. Jess, Please please join us in welcoming Dr. Candace. We cannot wait for you to hear this one.
0: I'm really excited that we have Dr. Candace um, to share with us today and I'm always excited to learn from other professional black women. So, mm-hmm. I'm feeling super excited.
1: Yeah, I think I'm also um, I'm feeling really curious about this topic. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. Denisha and I saw your email, uh, Dr. Candace, we were like, okay, let's talk about sex. Like, yes. <laughs> to have someone who's an expert to speak to things that we may not be able to speak to directly. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there is like a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement, a lot of curiosity. And so like Denisha said, we are just really grateful that you are here. I'm um,
2: excited to be here. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Um, So, Dr. Candace, tell us a little bit about what does resilience mean to you? To be black, to be female, and to be resilient—what does that mean to you?
2: I think being black, black women in particular, is an evergreen state of resilience because the world is continuing to throw things at us from which we have to bounce back, and whether it's fortunate or not, we have demonstrated the capacity to do so so despite what we've gone through despite individually or collectively what we've gone through for me resilience is the ability to not only recover well from it but sometimes to experience that post-traumatic growth as well to have these different iterations of yourself rising like a phoenix out of whatever the flames were that you got you know got swept into so that's what it means for me.
1: Uh, can you elaborate on the evergreen part? I love, I love <laughs> that part down. It is an evergreen state of existence. Ooh, elaborate you on know, that. Okay. So you
2: know how evergreen lasts all seasons. <laughs> and when you think about content that's evergreen, it's like, it's going to hit the same. Like you think about the miseducation of Lauren Hill, it's going to hit still even though it came out in 99, you know, like, so that's evergreen to me where it's always a thing. It's infinite. It's, you know, once it's created, it's going to continue to exist. And it takes like like, insurmountable harm to, to take it away. And usually it can't be defeated. Mm. And that's what black womanhood feels like to me.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's really, really good. I I love that that i I like. I'm just mm. okay. So this will be one of the clips that will <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, this is one of them. This is good. We you start know. with bankers. I mean, that's how you start, and um, and the post traumatic growth. Right, a lot of people don't talk about post traumatic growth, the part of mm-hmm. resilience that trauma doesn't just mean like I've been damaged or hurt. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. grown. Something has came out of this really painful place. Um, I think that's really important for our he- our listeners to to remember as part mm-hmm. of their, their story. Trauma is not the one thing that defines you, but there's no, something not at all that mm-hmm. has happened. Hmm.
0: So, Doctor Candace, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your passion? What are you passionate about as a resilient Black woman?
2: Ooh, okay. So it's so funny because when we talk about the sex, like as a topic, passion was the number one thing that Black people said was important when they think about what good sex is. But passion for me can be universal. So it doesn't have to be a sexual thing. And I'm passionate about talking, researching, and working with clients related to sexual wellness, but especially when it comes to black people, because of the way we've been socialized in our sexualities. Um, I'm passionate about music and I'm passionate about uh, writing poetry, you know, like things that like the arts do it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those, those are the things that like fuel my passion, but I can say, I don't know if this has been the case for y'all. It's, it's been harder to come by that feeling of passion recently. And so it's been nice to get back into the loop. And after, after COVID, you know, get back into the loop and reignite it and some of the things that I have loved to do for a very long time, but lost sight of.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think that resonates with me. And I think too of like, I just kind of feel myself trying to uh make more space for passion or joy. Um, because I think, right, like you said, like after COVID and it's just been just doing the bare minimum, getting things done, mm-hmm. surviving, like making sure my family, my kids are surviving. And now that there's a little bit more space, it's a little bit more safe yeah. uh, to kind of move around and do things in some ways. And then I, I think I just have that tension though of having the joy and then still hearing about like shootings in our in our country. Regularly. Right. So, you you know, that's just, I think that's part of being black in America too. Is like, we know that you have joy and then the possibility of pain just around the corner. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes holding them at the same time.
1: At the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Tell us a little bit about, uh, I know that part of like your mission and part of the work that you do is comprehensive sex ed. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, what does that mean? What's important for our listeners to kind of know about a comprehensive view of sex ed and tell us more.
2: So there's so many pieces to it. One, it's not something that happens in like your fifth grade class where the cis boys go in one place and the cis girls go another place. And then they show you disease genitalia, right? That's the, that's the sex that I got. (laughs) They were like, there's a trash can right here. Don't be somebody's trash receptacle. You know, it's like, wait, so what? <laughs> and at that point I was already engaged sexually. So I'm like, dang, you just tell me I'm a trash receptacle. Mm. Um, but so it's the, it's the antithesis of that. Um, but it's so it's ongoing and it starts early on and it help, happens in developmentally appropriate ways. That's one component of it. So as soon as a human comes into being, you know, they're the product of sex. And so that that should be a part of the conversation in in developmentally appropriate ways. And then for women, I'm middle age, I'm forty. You know, women my age and women who are older, not even just women, for people who are you know our age and older, if you've got terrible sex ed, you still need it. We still need to learn things. So that's that developmentally appropriate ongoing component. It's also sex positive, so it's not just looking at like how sex can be harmful disease prevention, unplanned pregnancy prevention, risk reduction, which is what most sex ed programs tend to be. It's also sex can be beautiful, it can be good, it can be pleasurable, it can be joyful. Um, it's about consent, understanding the many ways to express consent and to receive consent. It's it's about having it be anti-racist and liberatory and anti-capitalist, all of these things um, to remove, to remove the stigma, the shame, and the oppression that's kind of built into our educational system anyway from it so that you understand yourself as a sexual being. You have your sexual self-awareness. That means that you're allowed to make good sexual decisions for yourself with all the information you need. So that's what I think about comprehensive sex ed. It has all of
1: those components. How have you tried to like do this in your community, within the education system that you are most closely related to? Like, how does this play out in the classroom? Yeah.
2: So one way is that when I I used to be a high school teacher back in the day, that was my first career. And so I started organizations of girls like we have a step team or like a little sorority and we'd be doing all this community service. And I'm like, we also going to have a talk about sex and for you to understand yourself at this age, because some were making their sexual debut and some weren't at that time, you know, between 14 and 18 is pretty common. And so we were talking about how do you know when you're ready? What what matters to you? are you as deserving of pleasure as your partner like yes you know talking about those things so very early on in my career that was a part of it but as i became a, a psychologist and a sex researcher it's just core to the work i do so my studies are about good sex or sexual wellness and then that information i translate to my social media i translate to community workshops i've done sex um sex related talks in churches here and you know most churches ain't trying to have that conversation so shout out to total grace church in lexington kentucky because they were like come on in here and have this conversation and it was a group of women women who were 70 and women who were 25 and we were like you know god asked us to enjoy the sexual experience too according to the bible and we just we you know blended that cultural norm with what it means to experience sex in positive and beautiful ways um There's a a local high school here for teen parents where my team does sex ed and we get to give them comprehensive sex ed there. And so it's just, it's a thread through which my my work operates. And even I have a four-year-old son. And so we have the conversations about like, your body is developing. You used to be a little tiny seed inside of my womb or inside of my ovary you've always been with me. And then he's like, well, how did I get out? You know, I had a cesarean section. And this guy right here is where you came from. Then you say, ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, for him, that's developmentally appropriate. And I and I use the conversation to let him know it's okay to ask me those questions. And I'll be like, what else do you want to know? Sometimes he's done. He don't want to know anything else. And sometimes he's like, oh, so what else? What else happens? And And as he asks those questions, I know that he's ready to receive the answers.
1: I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Okay, one, you're also just giving our listeners of like, how do we have these sex ed conversations, even with our own children, that are age appropriate, truth telling age appropriate ways to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Our kids. Because people get afraid, right? They'd be like, I don't want to expose them. I want them to
2: maintain their innocence and all of these things. And I'm like, you don't got to show them porn.
1: Like (laughs)
2: there's so many ways to talk about sex that are not like exposing them to Mm -hmm. things that might be not, not good and appropriate for them at that time.
0: And I love what you said about, I know that if he's asking those questions, if my son is asking, then he's ready for those answers. Mm -hmm. So that's an indicator.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that like, you're just showing us too, like you said, it's the thread, it's the Mm -hmm. thread throughout our lifespan. Um, sex is something that is part of who all of us are right and so how do we keep the conversation going from four years old to 70 years old right like we don't just let go of this even people who are asexual like there is a conversation to be had right because even if that asexual person may want to be in a relationship with someone like how do they have the conversation of like I'm asexual I don't have these types of like Feelings and desires, but I know I want to be in a relationship, right? How do we teach our clients, our family members, our friends? Like you can keep having this conversation, right? Like I think I was sharing that just with a client this week of like consent is ongoing. Mm -hmm. and So even this talk about sex, sexual development, it is an ongoing conversation throughout our lifespan. And can we create enough safety for people to ask some real questions or say some hard things to people in their lives?
2: I appreciate that you brought up people who identify as ace too, because sometimes when I'm doing talks, they're like, do I get included in this? And I'm like, yeah, comprehensive sex ed is for you too, because defining your sexual self or the lack of sexual desire is a part of the conversation, like, and that it's that it's not pathological, you know, that it's an identity and that it's okay. Is a part of how you have good sex ed, that people know that that because I've I've worked with um people, I had people on my show and things like that, and they're like, I I didn't even know ACE was an identity until five years ago. They're good and grown. If we were having comprehensive sex ed, that would have been an
1: option, a way to express yourself. I think that's that's just really helpful, right? Like we're helping people or you're helping people understand like the full picture. Yeah, we only get told two different two things and so how do we see the full picture so that people feel seen and included um, and then they can feel valued uh, Yes. yeah right because I, I imagine that even people who are asexual they wouldn't say that they don't want to be they don't want to be loved. <laughs> they don't That's want to relationships. Great. They don't want to have connection and community. Um, and so, yeah, I love that they they get to be included in the, the sex talk, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: The latest edition of The R Word, a podcast that explores reparations role in racial, social, and economic justice, features an interview with Propaganda about his art and the impact that songs like Playing With Fire and What Do You Know About Grace have had on us.
1: Tweeted
0: about it. Don't be so Come from eastern side of Los Angeles, pretty ethnically diverse as far as like predominantly Mexican and, and uh, Filipino. So I kind of grew up in a pretty kind of tri-cultural space, you know, during some of the bigger movements in L.A. around hip hop, uh, skate, skateboarding, all that. So it's really, really cool, really
2: cool time to be alive. The R Word Podcast, available now at KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to the podcast, y'all. I love Dr. Candace. Just how you're able to normalize um, such a taboo topic. Um, you're sitting here and you're just talking about it flawlessly, and so there's a lot of comfort in your words and what you're saying. And so I just mm. had to stop and give you your flowers for that.
2: I appreciate that, and I always, mm. I always think back to what made it taboo. Like mm. if every human being came into this world through a sexual encounter.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: why would the most common thing on earth be taboo? And it's like, there's so many systems of oppression that are working to make things that are human and normal taboo. And it's disappointing and upsetting to me. So I love to be able to talk about it in ways that normalizes and reduces some of that stigma. So thank Mm -hmm. you for saying that.
0: Of course. Um, Another question is, can you just kind of explore and talk about why black women and girls need proper sexual reputations in order to survive in order to just be a black
2: woman i don't think we do but i think the message has been that we do if that makes Mm. sense so okay let me walk it back a little bit i was fast And if y'all know what that is, you know what it is, right? Like, it's a label we levy on Black girls and women who might, it can be anything, right? You could develop early, you could walk with your hips that move a little too much. You might be watching something on TV. And if you're looking a little too interested, like, there's so many ways that we get cast in that way. But I was fast in the traditional sense. So. <laughs> I made my sexual debut relatively early at 14. I was always curious about sex and development and what my body was doing. So that was me. And then we have this script, this overarching script around Black women and hypersexuality. And so many of the elders, the moms, the grandmas are like, we don't want to perpetuate this stereotype about Black womanhood. And so everybody suppress your sexual self so that we all look good. You know, so that we can't, people with, privilege and power who make decisions can't like can't tell our story for us or define us but that doesn't often help so it's like the sexual reputation management strategy where people are like don't don't look like you might be interested in sex don't express yourself in ways that might be perceived as sensual don't be curious about sex don't be talking about sex and we think it's about survival but systems of oppression will continue to adapt and so you can think that you're doing all the right things and being, de- being decent and having decorum and being poised and being a good girl and still be harmed in these systems. You might as well be yourself. That's the, way I, that's the way I feel about it. Be yourself and let's work to prevent the systems from being harm agents. And I understand where that messaging came from. You know, I get where, the, where some of our foremothers were going for that. From that, they were hoping that maybe they could protect us from our uncles or our grandfathers or white men or, you know, like historically all of these people who were coming at us sexually and violating us. Um, But at the end of the day, they're the perpetrators and black girls should be free to understand themselves as sexual beings and come into their own. And so my work, especially around the comprehensive sex ed and the research that I do is about, like we just said, normalizing the conversations around sex Helping people see that a sexual being, a person that expresses themselves sexually, doesn't automatically have the worst possible life. Like people are just like, if, you, if you're fast, you ain't going to be nothing in life. You're going to be pregnant. It's all of these things. And it's like, I'm happy and successful and, and enjoying my life. And that's why I always like to let people know this is what a fast girl can look like because, <laughs> because it's like, just make sure that, that girls have ways to understand consent and understand health and understand like reciprocity and mutuality and all of these things that might make the experience really good for them, as opposed to just don't do it and
1: don't talk about it. Do you feel like the, the part of like, um, uh black women's bodies being oversexualized like where do you feel like it has its roots in oh, yeah. um, I'm just I think it's like it. cis heteropatriarchy racism capitalism
2: so all of those things it the the work to make black women violatable without sanction is where that comes from mm-hmm. so if we came up you know those of us who are you know of the legacy of enslaved africans if we came up in a system where it was our reproduction was currency, like our progeny were were chattel slavery, then, of course, the myth of hypersexualization makes sense in that in that end. It's like they they want that. They deserve that. That's what they, you know, and so I'm not. You have to, you know, resolve your cognitive dissonance as a rapist mm-hmm. by saying, no, that's what that's what they wanted. That's who they are. You have to resolve your cognitive dissonance as a white woman who stood by and watched it happen. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, she was after my husband, you know, and then we see these, these type of messages get passed on. So I know in my research, um, be- anywhere between 35 and 65% of Black women, and it depends on what stat you read, have experienced some form of sexual violence. You talking about all the family systems and community systems that look the other way when that happened. Those are the same narratives. You know what I mean? The same, like she was doing something that made that possible. She was wearing something that made that possible so that you don't have to take responsibility or hold people accountable who have more power than you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where it came from, like all those systems of oppression interacting to make us reduced below humanity so that we could be violated. And the work against that is long game work, right? But that's why I do it.
1: Yeah. I'm not even thinking like in some ways how sometimes like religion even made holiness more important than the value of the woman themselves. You know what I mean? Like
2: Like you don't deserve good things in life if you're not being holy and chaste. You know, and it's it's poison for some of the religious messages to interpret spiritual texts like that. I think it's poisonous
1: yeah it's they I mean I feel like as a therapist they just become barriers right for for, in the the therapy room of like trying to help people see just even like a different view of God of like well Mm. what if God is really more loving more compassionate more gracious than than what I know you were preached at and told and right but what if God was more than that (laughs) it, it, it becomes a barrier and it why wouldn't God be more than that? Why you know would what I mean? He would like, be more than that, right? God would. He like at least that's what I believe about Him. Right, He's more than that, He would be more compassionate and kind toward us. Um, but yeah, like I, I think you're right. There's so I, I love how you said that. Like the stats for African American women is 35 to 40 percent of be, having sexual violence, and that that means that there were systems within our own family system. That perpetrated this oppression of us. And right that there were family members who looked away, not just like white people systems and which I do believe, I'm sure we all agree that institutional racism like impacts right. so many different things in different parts of our lives. But this is like black family. <laughs> like mm-hmm. all families look the other way. Or at the very least, we didn't feel safe enough to tell our families. Yep. That so-and-so touched me inappropriately, or or so-and-so showed me this movie. And and so I think like hearing you talk about this with your four-year-old son, yes, that is the conversation we have to have with our children because even in our families, Ooh, come on. Are showing our children things that are not appropriate and people are trying to touch our children, even in our families, and we have not Given our children, just like the words, the anatomic the words. words, what it, their body looks like and feels like and what's okay, what's not okay, then like we are doing harm even to our own children.
2: And then 25% of Black men in our sample experience sexual violence too. And we talk about that even less
1: frequently, right? The way that gets depicted. Black men to be raped by a yeah. family member. no place for them yes. to their own sexual right. It's and so we cool.
2: got to have these conversations with our kids and we got to have these conversations with our family members. Like if he doesn't want to give you a hug, he doesn't have to. If he doesn't want to give you a kiss, he doesn't have to. He
1: and that's, and that's his boundary. That. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to hug you. He doesn't have, we give out high fives today. <laughs> like yes. today
2: gets- is a high five day
1: <laughs> and it's a high five day. <laughs> that's oh, it. Man. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't think I ever thought about it in that way. Like art. Our- this is Black family stuff and Mm -hmm. how do we correct and honor, slow our own families down um, Mm -hmm. so that we don't continue to perpetrate systems of oppression within our own family unit.
2: I think that's for me where, so I use an intimate justice frame. That's where the work is priority for me because Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend the most time with my family. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend the most time with my partner and with my child. You know what I mean? And so- Mm -hmm if we don't have justice in that space, what I look like going out into the world protesting, and come home to violence, mm. you know, like that's that's wild. And we do it, you know, because mo- most of the movements, the liberation movements of our time and before our time were about, you know, job security and violence from police. And these are so necessary. I don't want to ever discredit that. But then a lot of people that I work with who participate in activist movements come home to harm and I'm doing repair work on all those levels therapeutically, right? Mm -hmm. We're doing healing work on all of those levels because the family system is the first place where harm can happen
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and often the place where it's going to be most hidden. So Mm -hmm. some of the messages we have in our families, and this is not exclusive to black families. I don't want to ever make it seem like that. Like families, regardless of racial identity. dealing with sexual violence and we do not have the monopoly on that but it is with us too and so we do gotta Mm -hmm. we do need to address it
1: absolutely yeah I think that's fair Mm -hmm. right humans deal with sexual violence Mm -hmm. right just like the whole thing about black on black crime like all humans (laughs) have crime toward other humans (laughs) right what their ethnic identity is right. there is crime period right and so sexual violence is happening to all of us we're just highlighting how it impacts yeah. us in this room and that's man that is good
0: that's good stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> that's I good know one. my yeah. goodness I
1: don't even know
0: hmm. I'm like can you we need to have you here in
2: person like I know. I a <laughs> days worth of just look we do it in person let me know (laughs) a sex workshop yes yes Yes, Yes. we can Yes,
0: Yes. so i feel like there's just in working with clients there's just so much shame even in like how your body responds if you've been violated and what that looks like and Mm -hmm.
2: we don't even have the basic anatomy down exactly yes yes and people you know to your to your point if a person experiences lubrication during sexual violence that does not mean they wanted to be sexually violated, right? Right. right. And it's right. like but if we don't have comprehensive sex ed, then mm-hmm. you got this perpetrator saying, "But it's clear that they wanted me." Mm-hmm. Clear. You know, like I think a lot of the reasons we have in across communities sexual violence is because in absence of comprehensive sex ed. If you think if you think to tell people the only thing you need to avoid is unplanned pregnancy and STIs, then you miss out on all of the things that are going on and people don't know where to put that, mm-hmm. that impotence that they usually act out through sexual violence.
1: Right, right. Because, you know, our brains just want to organize everything. So mm-hmm. I don't have a category to organize this and and what do I do? I'm left feeling shamed, embarrassed, guilt. Yes. It must have been my fault. I must have, i I did want this. I should not have worn that dress. I should have just. Yep. All the things. Um, Candace, as we get ready to close, um, I'm wondering what are like one or two things you want listeners to remember, to maybe even seek more information from, whether that's through your website or anything like that, what should our listeners be? Uh, thinking more about in order to have a much broader view of sexual education?
2: So for me, I usually give one activity. It's really simple, but it's helpful because most people haven't had an opportunity to do it yet. It's real. Yes, no, maybe so. Yes, all the things that you do like or want sexually, things you may have never tried that you've always hoped for, fantasized about, things you tried and you're like, that's it. Let's do that all the time. You know, like that's your yes list. Your no list is like, look, I didn't even need to try it. I know that ain't for me. (laughs) Or I tried it once, never going back. It's over with for that. I tried it twice and it was terrible the second time. I'm not doing it. That's your no. And then your maybe so was like, well, it depends on the context though. Cause am I on the beach? Am I in Jamaica? You know, like who am I with? what is we all? you know? Like, <laughs> So it's like, depending on the context, text, that's your maybe so. And I always invite folks to do that because it's a simple activity, but most of us haven't given, haven't been given room to articulate our sexual desires to ourselves, let alone to a partner. It's really hard to communicate with a partner when you don't know what to say. So that's, that's one way just to increase your sexual self-awareness. The second one is, so I'm excited to say I got a book coming out. It'll be out February, 2025. I'm writing it right now because I just got my book bill, but it's going to be on good sex. And it's going to talk about it from a liberation perspective. So people have it misconstrued what the sexual liberation movement is. They think that it has to include just one way of knowing yourself as a sexual being. It really, it is about agency and consent and you know autonomy and things like that. And all of these components of good sex and what it can be, how these systems of repression get in the way. So that's what I'm looking forward to. And you can just you know, follow me and stay connected while I write it because I always like to be transparent about the journey and how raggedy it can be sometimes.
1: Uh, what's your Instagram or Facebook, social media account?
2: All of them are at Dr. Candice Nicole, D-R period C-A-N-D-I-C-E-N-I-C-O-L-E. And then my website's drcandacenicole.com.
1: Awesome. Well, we will be sure to link all of your stuff and our show notes. Dr. Candace, thank you so much for being here today. We are so, so so excited that we got this opportunity to talk to you and I'm with Denisha. We need to figure out. <laughs> Let's do <laughs> it. Yes. It was really helpful. And we cannot wait for your book. Please, you'll have to come back when the book comes. I will.
2: <laughs> I absolutely
1: will. This is so much more to come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Denisha Simpson. And I'm Joy McGowan. And
0: you've been listening to the Resilient Black Women podcast. You can learn more about us and our work at resilientblackwomen.org.
1: And if you liked this episode, share it with a friend or two. Tell us what you think. We love reading reflections from our listeners. We hope you join us again. Bye, y'all.